0: the last corner here, going into the last chapter of Philippians. Let me go ahead and read from Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 3 today. So you can follow along with me. Uh, There's a different translation on your bulletin cover, but you can follow on the screen as well. This is from the NIV. 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, let me just pause there. Just to keep in mind that whenever you see a therefore, there's always a significant reason that it is therefore. So uh, you, if you're not following everything right away, uh, this falls on the heels of, of a lot of information that's been covered. And so we'll, we'll go into that, but uh, let's just follow here. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long—excuse me, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pause and pray one more time here. Heavenly Father, I want to acknowledge that this is your word Uh, Even this short little bit here has, has a lot of stuff packed into it, and there's something here for us. And so, Lord, help me to convey it adequately, help us to hear it, and to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we round the last corner, go into the last chapter, Paul now concentrates on addressing Several potential roadblocks for the church. He's going to look at conflict here. One case of conflict anyway. Next week, Mark's going to talk about anxiety and purity. These are other things that can be roadblocks to the victory of the church going forward. The movement of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So rather than take it all at once, we decided to take it a chunk at a time. Thus, our passage is a little shorter this week than usual Who here loves a good confrontation? Oh, yeah, there's a few people. Who here loves conflict? Yeah, these are the people to avoid. Take a good look at them. Um, Yeah, there's something wrong with... No. Most of us do not. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely more of a pleaser, kind of empathizer person. I hate confrontation. I don't like conflict. And my reluctance to address it has at times resulted in consequences that are worse than had I just addressed it at the forefront right at the time earlier on. Because to an extent, conflict is unavoidable. We really can't get away with it unless you can really get away with, from everyone. And then you're going really, to start having conflicts with yourself if you do that. It's, you're not going to escape it. Um, any married person will tell you that. Any sibling will tell you that. My kids get wrapped up in arguments over the craziest things. They were uh, visiting their cousins the other day, and I came home, and like we had factions, and people were pouting and upset, and it was about pretending to be a dolphin, and who got to be the dolphin, and who didn't. <laughs> And it had turned into a big deal. And we laugh at that because they're kids, but, but we do that too. We take these little things and they always escalate into big things because really the little thing isn't the real thing, is it? There's, there's emotions, there's history, there's things behind that little thing that infuriates us, causes us to entrench, and then leads to conflict, right? We, we know that. Um, We're never told exactly what the nature of this conflict is between these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. But for some reason, Paul sees it as worthwhile and important to address as part of the letter. And I was looking at the meanings of their names. I was looking up the words. And the word Iodia means fragrant. When you think of, like, someone whose name means fragrant, think of someone who, like, walks in a room and they have, like, this presence, you know, this lightness, this, this something that fills the room when they come in, right? You think of someone, I'm thinking, like, a dreamer, okay, a type B personality, an Anne of Green Gables, an idealist, you know, someone like that. Uh, and then you have the name Sintiki, which means uh, fortunate or from fate, okay, from fate. Have you ever met a fatalist? Have you ever met someone who is just down to earth and a realist? You get Anne of Green Gables in with one of these people and there's potential for conflict, right? There's just like the type, you know, the Yodios, they, they start talking and they're all into big concepts and dreams and visions about what could be and how everyone should act. And, and finally, type A personality, the fatalist, the, the realist, speak up, speaks up and says like, look, you are wasting everyone's time. Because you haven't talked about anything practical, you haven't talked about any action steps, any budget categories that this is going to fit in, anything like that. So, so can we just get down to business here, right? There's conflict, and I have no idea if the meanings of these two people's names has any bearing whatsoever on the nature of the conflict that they were experiencing. But for the sake of um, illustration, it kind of shows the point. You get two or more people in a room, and you automatically have a mixing pot of experiences, personality styles, and opinions that don't always meld very well. Now, that's not new to most of us. That shouldn't surprise us. You could say, okay, Einstein, you know, tell me something I didn't understand. Uh, But what is interesting is the way that different people handle conflict. Have you ever noticed that there are some people who seem to be able to take Hit after hit, criticism after criticism, and they just remain rock solid. Like it just doesn't shake them. Have you ever met anyone like that? They just they hear something that could be devastating, they're like, okay, I'll consider that. And we just keep going, we keep moving on. On the other hand, there are people who are so sensitive that everything you do in their presence is like walking on eggshells. And as soon as there's any sign of conflict, they clam up, they get real quiet. They give you the silent treatment. Or they get defensive. They get hurt. They get angry. They get resentful. And so on. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably tend to be both those people at some point or another. It probably depends on who's talking to us. Like who we can actually take it from and who we can't. Uh, it probably depends on what our mood is like. What what we've been eating. How much sleep we've been getting. A whole bunch of other factors. Right? Paul seemed to have been a very unshakable person in the way he acted, in the way he wrote. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in my body the death of Jesus like a treasure in a jar of clay. And he wants us to have that solidity as well. He wants us to have that solidness. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, be steadfast, be solid, be impenetrable. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, first of all, how big of a deal is this? And what is really at stake here? What is the nature of this conflict between these two women? And why is it even worth it for Paul to mention them by name? I mean, it's kind of unfortunate. Like, they will never be known as anything else throughout all of eternity. Well, eventually maybe they will. I don't know. As, as those people who Paul wrote about in Philippi. They went down in history as like... The conflict ladies, right? And Nancy found a cool picture on your bulletin cover of boxing women. You're going to see that in your mind every time you hear about Yodia and Sintiki, right? Presumably, in eternity, we might even meet these people someday. When asked about this, what do you think they're going to say? You know, I can't believe he actually brought that up. It wasn't that big of a deal. Or, I'm so thankful that he called us out and we put our differences aside and there was victory and the fate of the church depended on it and so on. One of my commentaries drew the conclusion that for Paul to mention this situation, it must have been really serious. These women were divided and they were probably dividing the church at Philippi over their own issues and Paul had to intervene. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said anything. But I actually kind of disagree. I tend to disagree with that commentator. Because when you look at the overall tone of Philippians, it's very positive. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of urgency. He wants them to be mature in their faith. He wants them to keep standing and striving together. He wants to set, have, build them up so they can stand through opposition and get through obstacles and continue to be united in their faith. And he has a lot of good things to say about that. Uh, Also, you look at other letters that he's written, like 1 Corinthians, where he points it out. I hear that there are divisions among you, and it's not good. He doesn't say anything like that here. There's no division going on. And I think that that is exactly the point. Because we can say, oh, this little disagreement, it's not really worth mentioning. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, you know, we wouldn't want to trouble anyone with our petty squabbles. This, this little grudge of mine, it's, it's not hurting anyone. It's not a real problem. The claim of Christianity is that it holds the key to salvation. Romans 1.16 says that it is the gospel that is salvation to the world for everyone who would believe it. Salvation to everyone. What is salvation? What is salvation but the reversal of the verdict over our lives that our sin demands. We are now free from condemnation. We are now free from the power that sin holds over us. And we're continually being saved in a different sense and that we're being transformed in accord with that salvation. But what is sin? What is the sin that we're being saved from? Sin is that selfishness that divides us. It's that something that says, My own will is supreme. It's that something that leads to conflict, that leads to entire communities of people dividing, that leads to war and pain and evil in the world. And so, without unity, without reconciliation, the claim of Christianity that it holds a key to salvation doesn't have a lot of evidence. Okay? Without unity, there's no witness to the truth of the gospel. In fact, disunity is evidence against the gospel. There is a social element to salvation, not just a vertical element. Especially in this day and age, our world, especially millennials today, they're all about promoting social justice and peace and, and they, they look for this kind of a salvation, and they even have a lot of experiences that look very religious for how they're going to go about achieving a kind of salvation, though they would never call it that. But if the church can't display unity, then we're just another option. We're just another kingdom, like all the rest. Therefore, for Paul, it is very much worth mentioning Our seemingly mundane conflicts are important. So what is Paul's solution? What is his method? Not method, but mindset. That's what he goes to first. Now there are really helpful methods out there for conflict resolution, but Paul doesn't go there first. And we might ask the question, well, what does Christianity offer us? Because you can go, if, if it's all about achieving just kind of some social salvation, just sort of be able to get along and have peace, we could come here and we could hear all kinds of self-help or some methodology, five points to good conflict resolution and so on. What does the gospel have to do with conflict resolution? What does the song that we sang, "Oh, praise the name of our risen King, for He shall raise us from the dead. How does that change the way we encounter conflict? Because it does, and it's coming. You're going to see it. Our resurrection and Christ's resurrection changes the way we deal with conflict. Not just a method, but a mindset. Instead of saying, I want you to think about what to do, he says, let's talk about who you are. And in this short three verses, Paul brings to bear almost all of the major principles and themes of the first three chapters of Philippians, and he applies them to this situation very simply. So instead of do it this way, he says think this way. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, brothers and sisters, and be of the same mind in the Lord as well. Your translation might say agree in the Lord. And by the way, Paul's solution is not simply to tell them to agree. To just get over it and agree. I mean, imagine two people go to someone for help with a disagreement and that someone says, all right, here's the solution. Agree. Sorry. (laughs) That would have been tried. It would have been done if it were that easy, right? No, he says, agree in the Lord or have the same mind in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Well, in what way? In what way? Well, we just got done with Philippians chapter 3, and in verses 18 through 21 say, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their mindset, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body? There it is, a hope of resurrection. So have that mind, the same mind, you who are dealing with conflict. Where's the connection? What does it mean? You have a new citizenship. You have a new savior. You have a new ultimate hope of glory. So think this way. Think that way. Don't think with an earthly mindset. You are a citizen of heaven. This is how you stand firm in the Lord. This is how you agree in the Lord. Not simply what to do first, but who you are first. That's where it goes. And that's very backwards from our normal way of thinking. We usually jump Right to method, first of all. Self-help, first of all. Or give me those five tools for conflict resolution. We want practical tools to fix our uncomfortable problems. But Paul says, first, we're going to talk about big truths, eternity, identity. And we're going to bring those principles to bear on every situation. Even those conflicts that don't seem very significant. And this is, this is really not a comfortable, natural way of doing things. And I can attest to this. When people come into my office and they're dealing with a conflict, they're dealing with something, I immediately get into the nuts and bolts of the conflict. That's my tendency. Well, tell me about this. Tell me about that. Help me understand this. Blah, 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 blah. I've never said, your citizenship is in heaven. I want you to think about that. I want you to start there. That's just not natural, Right? Usually, people want you to take their side in a conflict. They want to suck you in to a conflict. Uh, there There was a marriage that was going through a hard time, ended in divorce. We were trying to walk with this marriage through this process, and there was a lot of work that they could have done if they had wanted to. But finally, one of the members in the marriage sat down, said, I'm getting the divorce, and I want to know that my church supports me. Does my church support me? Now, there are probably reasons like abuse or or things that are really bad that are irreconcilable that you would have to kind of come to a position and say, okay, And, and that's not something I'm in any way an expert on. But these people weren't there. They were not there yet. The person just wanted out. And there was a lot of difficult stuff going on, but there was potential. So what do you say? You know, do, does my church support me? Well, we love both of you. We love you both. We support the unity of your marriage and so on. But that wasn't good enough. And so goodbye, long gone. I, w- I should have asked like, well, who does Jesus support? You know, uh, <laughs> that's uh, we'll take his side. Um, There was another story where a couple ladies couldn't reconcile with something. They had been working together on something and one did something that offended the other. And the one lady comes in, she says, I want justice. I want justice for this situation. So the elders got kind of involved. They sat down. They wanted to arrange a way to talk with each other and work through it. It just was never good enough. And so, boom, her family's gone. You know, take off, we're dividing. We're dividing. We're going to another church or we're just not going to church or something like that. Now, sometimes these things happen and there's just nothing you can do about it. I don't know the, the nitty-gritty of every situation. But if, if you have to have justice always for every wrong that's ever been done, you're going to have a very hard time having peace in a community. And Paul doesn't do it that way. He doesn't get involved and take sides. He says, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Not that we don't correct people when we see wrongdoing, when we identify something that's wrong, and not that we, but we don't take sides. The only side we take is a side of unity. We contend for unity. Paul never shows preference for one over the other. In fact he even applies his own teaching by regarding them both very highly. He says even I mean even God's most faithful servants disagree and have serious conflicts from time to time. He says I want you to remember that you are citizens of heaven but also how does he talk about these women They're included in the brothers and sisters my joy and my crown They're both fellow workers, co-workers for the gospel who have contended at Paul's side. Their names are written in the book of life. And we might be tempted to think lower of people who are in the midst of a messy conflict because it looks messy and we don't like to get into that. But instead of saying something to the effect of you'd better get along and have the same mind so that your names would be written in the book of life. He says, no, have the same mind in the Lord because your names are written in the book of life. Remember who you are. You are not this. You are not this conflict. You are citizens of heaven. And that pulls us out. Don't allow your conflicts and disagreements to define you. Don't let it become your identity. Don't let the threat of being embarrassed or assaulted, or or, um, offended in some way be such a threat to you as a person that you cannot allow any kind of reconciliation to take place unless you get it your way. Because what are you doing? You're not a solid person. You're a very fragile person if you do that. You don't have the solidity of Christ. Don't let it become your identity. Rather, in the midst of those disagreements, affirm that identity in Christ. First, go to the big picture. First, go to big principles, big doctrines. Who am I in Christ? Who do I belong to? Who does God say I am? And how does that actually work? How does that help us in any way? Well, why conflict? What's usually going on? What's the problem? Usually we're offended, usually we're defensive, or we just think someone else is wrong. There's something that's being infringed upon here, and we don't like it, right? Romans 8 says, I consider that my suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to me. And you could apply that in the same way. When I am confident of who I am in Christ, then I don't need to be so defensive in a conflict because I am a citizen of heaven and my own lowly glory that I'm trying so hard to defend is actually not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. That is revealed in Christ. And will even be experienced in me as he transforms my lowly body the same way Jesus' body was transformed and glorious and perfected in his resurrection. That's our future. That's how resurrection affects conflict. And conversely, the other side of that is when I'm put up on a pedestal, when I'm praised by others. It doesn't go to my head because I am a citizen of heaven. And the glory that I'm even receiving right now isn't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that I will one day experience. Big principles applied to everyday situations over and over again. When I consider my citizenship, the glory, how can I keep digging in? What's this grudge really worth? on that eternal spectrum. And Paul is asking us to consider the bigger picture. And he brings several big themes from this letter to bear on this situation. And ultimately, what it comes down to is the effectiveness of the church and its mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The themes work like this. Victory, unity, humility. Victory, unity, humility. humility. Paul wants the church to be victorious in our mission. But to succeed as a team, we have to have what? Unity, right? There has to be unity. But in order for there to be unity, what must there be on that team? Humility, right? There has to be humility in order for there to be unity, in order for there to be victory, Let's talk about victory a little bit. Paul says in chapter 1, I always pray for you with joy because of your partnership, unity in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Confidence in victory. And now he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. And that word for crown is not like a crown of loyalty. It's the crown that the Olympic athletes would receive when they were on the podium getting their prize. The prize. The victor's crown. Okay, my joy, you are my victory. You are my joy and my crown. Victory is both the launch pad and the finish line. It's the starting line and the finish line. It says let us live according to what we have already attained because of our victory we can have unity we can lay aside certain disagreements that get in the way we can handle those disagreements differently Because we have victory, and our victory isn't affected by our self-esteem being infringed upon in a conflict, right? Victory is the starting place. Remember who you are. Remember the victory that is secured for you, and that will change the way you handle conflict. But victory is also the finish line. Because there is a goal still. There is a mission to accomplish. There is a world to transform. There is the gospel to save People And if the team doesn't have unity, it can't achieve victory in that way. So victory is the end goal and the starting line. Yodia and Sintiki are already written in the book of life. Their conflict doesn't change that. But let us live as citizens worthy of the gospel, chapter 1 says. And our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3 says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. There is a past victory that secures our citizenship and also a future victory. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, and this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's our victory. That one day we will be presented pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. But he has made that victory possible. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Jesus' death and resurrection has achieved for us a victory that is working itself out in our lives and will one day result in total future victory. So because of our victory, we can have unity. We can have the same mind in Christ in that way. Even if we don't always agree, in that sense, we can have the same mind. An attitude, not just a mindset, an attitude that understands our victory is the starting line for unity. And it's also the finish line. Unity. It says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. The word true companion might actually be a name. They're not really sure. The name is Syzygy. It means yoke fellow. What's a yoke? Do you remember? Whenever people would say something about my yoke is easier, my burden is light, as a kid, I always thought egg yoke. And I was like, I, I'm not seeing this, you know, I don't understand. <laughs> Over easy? I don't know. Um, so uh, what is a yoke? A yoke is what they strap an oxen to, or an oxen, oxen team to, in order to carry a load. So a yoke fellow is someone who comes along and yokes himself up along with someone else to make that job easier. So I'm calling upon you, genuine yoke fellow, it's a funny thing to say, um, to come and yoke up with these women because they have been yoke fellows to me. They have been contenders for the gospel side by side with me. Paul knows that, he sent, that unity is essential for the future victory of this church. And so he calls in help. He, compa- he calls upon his companions to fight for unity. But what is essential for unity? What do you have to have in order for unity to even be possible? Humility. You have to be willing to take that yoke, don't you? For unity and victory to be possible, there has to be humility. Humility. But what does he mean by humility? A really good quote that I heard, I don't even remember from where, just says that uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And in this case, helpfulness. Right? Help these women. I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. There are plenty of people who talk down about themselves and they come off as really humble. Oh, it's nothing. You know, oh, I could never do that. Oh, I'm not smart enough for that. I'm not strong enough for that. Oh, I'm not, you know, whatever, whatever. And they come off as really humble. Humble. But this is not the sign of true humility because the reality is people are messy and conflicts are messy and it's easy to be an avoider. You can talk like a humble person, but are you willing to get into the mess? Are you willing to help? That's what humility looks like. Are you a helper? Can you get your hands dirty? The mark of real humility is one who lays priorities and privilege aside and yokes themselves up together to strive and stand for unity. It takes humility to enter into that messiness. And it takes humility to receive help. Most of us are way too proud to ask for help. But when we can't or won't, what are we saying I'm too good for that. Whoa, I'd like to avoid that. That's not for me. That's someone else, you know, who's more qualified or someone else who deals with messy stuff or or whatever. Now, granted, there is such a thing as an unhelpful helper. Paul clarifies, he says, my genuine companion. He might have someone specific in mind because there are people who have a chip on their shoulder, and think they're going to go be really helpful out of pride and cause a lot of damage. Um, So you have to be careful with this. There are boundaries. There are things that, that of course, require a lot of nitty-gritty stuff that I can't talk about right now. Philippians 2, 2 says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, of the same mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests only, but each of you to the interests of others. Be a yoke fellow. But what does Paul have in mind when he says help? How do you help? How do you be a helper? My, uh, Commentary says this, the primary meaning of this verb, help, carries a strong sense of physical action. It means to seize, to grasp, to apprehend, to catch, and to take hold of together. The verb refers to the arrest of Jesus in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. It also refers to the arrest of Peter. The same verb refers to the catch of many fish in in Luke 5, 9. And to the help that is given by the disciples to pull in the nets and fill the boats with that catch of fish. I want you, my true yoke fellow, to go and take hold of these people. Get a hold of them. Catch them. rein them in. Apprehend them. Pull them together in unity. I want you to take hold of them. To remind them of who they are. You are a citizen of heaven. You've been taken hold of because of the love that has taken hold of all of us. And we are taking hold of you. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this, or already achieved my own goal, my already achieved my perfection or my status in, in Christ, or the ability to know Christ most fully. I haven't achieved that, but I press on to take hold. To take hold of that For which Jesus Christ took hold of me. So, the reason we take hold of the prize of knowing Jesus Christ is because we've been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. And because we've been taken hold of by Jesus Christ, we take hold of one another in Christ. We don't just let each other go, we don't just say, Good riddance. So, I guess that's your own business take hold of one another because Christ took hold of you. In your relationships with one another, in chapter 2 he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited but emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being found in the image of man, mankind. He emptied himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We humble ourselves in helping one another because Jesus Christ humbled himself to help us. Now, I want to read a passage, and I want you to think about it very carefully with me. Okay? Think about this as we go through it. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. What does this look like? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Remember what he said. He said, there are those who live according to the world, but you, we, are citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is from heaven. Okay? We don't regard Euodia and Syntyche according to a worldly point of view anymore. We think differently. We call them higher. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this... Is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's the ministry of reconciliation? Is it just tell people about Jesus so they can be restored to a relationship with God? No. It's saying, let your example be. What Christ has done for you, who gave of himself to reconcile you with the Father, now give of yourself as a helper to reconcile your sisters in Christ and your brothers in Christ together. Paul does this powerfully in the book of Philemon when he writes to a slave owner who could seriously uphold the debt that his runaway slave owes him. He could even have him put to death. Onesimus is the name of the slave. And Paul says, I want you to reconcile with Onesimus and if he owes you anything, if there's anything getting in the way of that reconciliation, let me look like a cross. Let me take on the picture of Jesus and be a helper. Charge whatever he owes to my account so that I can be a Christ figure in reconciling the two of you and resolving this conflict. Verse 19 says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Let me stop there first. If we are saved, if we are reconciled to God because He didn't count your sins against you but laid them on His Son instead, how can you hold a grudge? How can you hold those sins over someone else when you have been forgiven so much? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, helpers, as though God were making His appeal through us Christ's appeal going through Paul to reconcile Onesimus and Philemon and to reconcile Iodia and Syntyche. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, if there's anything they owe you, put it on me so they can be reconciled. Have that mind. Euodia and Syntyche, you are citizens of heaven. Maybe you are a type A Syntyche in this room today. And type B Euodias drive you crazy. Maybe you're an overly sensitive Euodia and some Syntyche in the room just scowls at you and you feel so hurt and wounded by that. You are a citizen of heaven whose glory that is being given to you as a gift isn't even worth comparing with whatever glory you're trying to defend right now. God did not count your sins against you and has committed to you the message of reconciliation. Helpers are therefore those ambassadors. We empty ourselves to help as through whom God is making his appeal. There are probably a lot of valuable methods for encountering conflict out there. But I think the real solution is in perhaps the most difficult challenge. Believing the gospel. Believing what Christ says about you. Believing who you really are in that moment when it's really hard because they're just getting under your skin. That's the moment to apply it. That's the moment to believe it. Thinking as a citizen of heaven whose mind is not set on earthly things. Don't regard your little situation as insignificant. Apply the truth to every situation. Your victory makes unity possible. But disunity subverts our victory. And unity requires humility the humility of emptying oneself and being helpful, and the humility of emptying oneself of pride. And accepting help. Maybe God is calling upon you to seek help. To get your mind around the bigger picture and to get someone in your life who will help you live according to the victory that Christ has secured for you. Maybe God is calling upon you to be a helper. I don't know all that that looks like. I know it can be messy and unwelcome. And there are just times when people don't take it, they won't hear it. As Christ reconciled us to the Father, so too let us take hold of one another. To find each other when we're saying when we're recognizing this way of thinking and living is not in keeping with our true citizenship. So let's rein each other in. Let's yoke up and let's take hold of one another in love the way Christ has taken hold of us if you're in Christ if you don't know Jesus today then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about but there is a source in the midst of conflict there is a hope for you that is offered here that gives you a solidity unlike any you will find anywhere else because if you don't have that solidity where are you going to find it? where are you going to go? What do you have in the midst of conflict that can give you a backbone other than your own arrogance and pride to stand on, or the fact that your mama loved you? I don't know. that was random, but uh, We don't come to Christ for what we can get. We come to Christ because of the truth. So ask yourself, is this true? Read, discover, pray, seek, find Him. Because if this is true, then He will take hold of you. And that will change everything. And you will be able to take hold of Him more and more every day. And when you have that, you have freedom. Even in the midst of conflict. Let's pray. Father, help us to remind ourselves of big truths in the midst of every situation. I am who you say I am. I am a citizen of heaven. I am a sinner. I might even be wrong. But because I'm a citizen of heaven, being wrong is not a shot to my pride that I have to defend. I can think about it. I can be open to it. at the same token, if if it's they who are wrong, if it's myself who's being injured, I am a citizen of heaven. They can't steal the glory that is to be revealed to me. The love that is given to me. The oneness in Christ and the citizenship I have in heaven. So God, make us an even keeled people who can achieve unity and victory as we stand and strive together for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.